0: Today, I have gathered myself and the few skills I have at my disposal, which is very few, utilizing every iota of confidence that I can muster in the dialogue forthcoming to illustrate to you, and I, myself, why on earth this anime makes second place in my anime slash manga favorites list. Because even I don't know. I really don't. And I should. Because I'm calling it my second favorite anime. I mean, I should really fucking know, but I don't. So it's clear that I won't know until I do some soul searching myself and like the story's two main characters, make it from this basement level, being in the world state, yes, that's Hygalian, in which I know nothing, and ascend the levels of awareness and comprehension, usually ignored by my brain, to higher ground, and ultimately escape the shackles of this corporeal meat suit, or you know, whatever Hamlet said. Anyway, I felt like I needed to do the anime some justice, even if it's only for my benefit. I'm going to do my best to just point out why it's a great anime premise, why it makes for a great anime, why it is weirdly unique at the same time as it takes on an air of cliche, and why it could have been an even better work of art if only the creators could have made the anime a little bit more artistic, like something we saw with Madoka Magica or Mob Psycho. And I say that not discounting the fact that there are more than a few moments that certainly tend towards the kind of artistry I believe this anime deserves. Anyway, I've watched some stuff, and I've read some stuff about this anime by reviewers, and generally speaking, people seem to like the anime quite a lot. But there's a lot of anime theory floating around about what really happened at the end of the story, and I just wanted to put in my singular scent about what I personally think the anime is trying to get at. There's also a bit of criticism out there that I'd like to combat, because I don't think the criticisms I've come across are particularly substantial. It's kind of like they're just confused at the story and pin it down to the story's fault for being badly written, which I obviously do not think is the case. I think Angels of Death just bypasses a lot of aspects of traditional anime, allotted to any one genre, that we expect to see but that we just don't hear. Now, I think a lot of this is thanks to the fact that Angels of Death was originally a video game before it got turned into an anime, and later into a manga and serialized into tankobon. For now, however, I just want to settle and make my main statements regarding what I want to illustrate and emphasize in this video. Angels of Death is written in a way that emphasizes what it means to be psychologically lost what trauma and psychosis does to confuse the brain how guilt and loneliness can affect a memory how death can tear us away from something but also bring us closer to the people we've experienced it alongside so how do you explain the plot of Angels of Death? well, I guess I'll just start from the beginning Our main character comes to her senses, or wakes up, so to speak, in an empty room, save for the chair she's sitting on, with a big-ass window with the moon shining through. This girl gets to her feet from her chair and proceeds to do that typical thinking-out-loud thing that is so prevalent to anime so that we come to understand that this weird situation she appears to be in is, in fact, out of the ordinary. She proceeds out the door into the hallway where she finds a low-key creepy message on the wall, She enters the only other room she can find, and here, there's just a mirror and a computer. At least in the game, it's a computer. In the anime adaptation, they made it a typewriter instead, probably because they thought it would fit the mood better. There are also a number of things that you have to do to ascend levels in the game that you obviously don't see take place in the anime, and to me, that makes complete sense. Although Angels of Death has been labeled horror since it's released, I seriously don't know why. It's not even that much of a psychological thriller, which is probably the thing it comes closer to, which I also think is why people either seem to love or hate it. That is, it doesn't seem to live up to the genres it's been cast as. It has people going, so, it's horror? Well, I ain't scared. After all, probably the biggest jump scare in the entire show is when Zach comes barreling out of nowhere to kill Rachel in their brief meeting moments on the sixth floor. And that that ain't horror. Like, buddy, if you if you want horror, like I can deliver horror. <laughs> <laughs> regardless regardless of whether people like it or think it's not worth the time, however, they all pretty much say the same thing. It's ridiculous. It's an unrealistic world. And no, they're not exactly wrong. I mean, do you really think that in anything like our world you'd be faced with the existence of a building where there are live-in psychopaths that stay just so they can kill anyone who has the misfortune of being abandoned there? I don't think so. And, yes, that is the overarching structure of the entire scenario that Rachel's been situated in. Her job, from the outset, is to become a quote-unquote sacrifice for the psychopaths living on each floor of this complex. Floors that, for some reason, are also labeled backwards. Weirdly, because of this, even in the fact that we have six floors to go through doesn't really hit home. It just feels like we will keep traveling with Zack and Rachel with no discernible end in sight until they answer that fateful question posed to Rachel at the outset of this, um, quest. Namely, who are you? This story does immersion exceedingly well. Thus, even as the story progresses and we come to know more about Rachel and Zack as they climb these levels and get to know each other better, the world they're fighting against only seems to become more and more vague and confusing. And well, I think that's one of the story's biggest strengths. The greatness of this story's premise is that it allows so much room for interpretation. I have read so many theories about what actually happened at the end of the story that it's it all gets jumbled in your head. In a sense, even with the beautiful ending we do get, the story ends up nowhere near complete, and yet it seems like we get a very full picture nevertheless. So it's vague and confusing precisely because, well, it, it it's supposed to be. If we're going to talk identity and therefore discuss the meaning of existence itself, then we also have to regress into a discussion of existentialism and by that measure delve into the absurd. And yes, that means all forms of it. There's the Chameleon absurd, the Sartrean absurd, de Beauvoir and Samuel Beckett, all of them with their roots in Kierkegaard, who is probably the most applicable philosopher that you could talk about when discussing angels of death and in Schopenhauer fighting with Nietzsche and Nietzsche reconciling with him. And this is just to name some of the greats. Existentialism as a movement is tangible in this story. Angels of Death appears very much so to be influenced by this kind of sense and even by the gothic romanticism in its visualization that came before it. This anime is oddly Western with its extreme Christian imagery and the way it asks aggressively without any airs, who the fuck are you? There are even references to Alice's adventures in Wonderland, the most obvious being that moment where Alice follows Mr. Rabbit down the hole into Wonderland. And while Alice in Wonderland cannot be considered a part of the existentialist movement, it remains a study of absurdity and identity. The presence of references to it, therefore, are meant to emphasize the same sense of being cowed by the weight of the struggle where one tries to understand oneself in a world that doesn't quite make sense. Okay, so existentialism, Alice in Wonderland, all this in mind, let's take a closer look at the framework and the basic elements that we have here. We've got an amnesia patient who's quite intelligent and good at solving puzzles. She's practical, but locks her emotions away as soon as she's told that she's going to hell. It's clear that she's fragile. She doesn't want to do bad. Her actions all along until this point are to try and bring people together to fix what is clearly broken, albeit in a very skewed manner. Second, we've got a mass murderer who wants only to kill, but it turns out he has a pretty emotional side. Loki desires to protect anything he decides he likes, but also tries to pretend he doesn't have feelings, even though he admits he's dumb, but he's dumb because he's emotional, so, yeah. Anyway, they make the pact that Rachel will help lead Zack out of the building because, as he says, he's stupid and in return, Zack will kill her since Rachel wants to die after, quote unquote, finding out that her God is dead, which was a nod, definite nod to Nietzsche. Sorry, it just is. And since suicide is condemned in her religion, we assume it's Christianity, given the fact that she ends up literally crucified later, though it's a witch, witch trial. Not sure what that means. She can't kill herself. They're kind of a perfect team. Zach can fight the bad guys on the way when it comes to brute force, and Rachel can figure out the puzzles, traps, and weaknesses of their enemies. She's the brain, he's the guts. And it's this idea that really sticks when we have a story about discovering one's own identity, religion, beliefs, motivations, with an end goal of getting out of a structure wherein at every juncture you're being cornered, and tortured, and judged by entities that care not for your struggles. Every level is, specifically, a piece of Rachel's mind. But, more specifically, Zach is a part of Rachel. I think that a great interpretation of this entire story is that Rachel is actually in the mental hospital she ends up in at the end of the story the whole time. Breaking out of the building of psychopaths is just a metaphor for breaking out of her mind. And as someone who has experienced psychosis twice, it isn't far-fetched that she would create whole characters in her mind that actively interact with her, as if in a dream, just so her brain can cope with what's going on. Danny is a figment of the doctors who, in her disjointed state, she believes aren't actually on her side. They want to know her perspective. As in, they want her eyes. They want that version of whatever's wrong with her brain to become theirs, not so they can help her, but merely so they can take and possess something she treasures, which is her own sanity, which is ultimately something beautiful, aka consciousness itself. If we take this idea to heart, then we can make a statement about why Grey doesn't appear to have pupils or irises. It's as if he might as well not have eyes at all. And isn't he, in a sense, Rachel's real doctor throughout this whole endeavor? Guiding her to the conclusion that the only god that exists is the one that we create? Everything else is meaningless. But if he's ultimately guiding Rachel and Zach to the exit, essentially knowing that regardless of the barriers he puts up that they'll both make it through, is he not a lot closer to Rachel than we think? If he already knows who, what she is, then why would he need her eyes? This makes him likely a projection created by Rachel for Rachel to help her process everything. Level 3 is more internal than Rachel's warped perspective of the hospital, hence the dank, cavernous, and earthy setting we are led into. This is where we meet Eddie. He wears a weird kind of wooden pumpkin over his head, and likes to build headstones for his victims. In this way, he's all about hiding what's there behind something more tolerable, about avoiding facing reality head-on, and accepting one's own avarice and lust for what it is. He claims that what he does is art in the name of beauty, failing to acknowledge just how fucked up it all is. He claims he knows what Rachel really wants, which is to die. In this way he does represent Rachel's desire to die and to be laid to rest honorably, but the desire he claims to be able to fulfill is too naive to be satisfying, and Rachel realizes this halfway through the level. To simply die and be buried amongst the flowers would be to accept losing her god, having lost herself, and to accept a facade that promises everything is fine. But it's not fine for Rachel. She feels she is somehow responsible for the death of God and for his, at the same time, leaving her, just as her memories and her parents have left her. On that point, she's also made a promise to Zack, and to leave him dry would be shirking her duty. On the next level, we meet Kathy, the prison warden, who put Zack and Rachel through trials, although she seems to have already judged them. Kathy knows Rachel's sins, even if Rachel does not. The interesting part here is that Kathy doesn't try to torture her with those memories as she does Zach, forcing him to relive them. This is part of what I use as evidence to consider the building more like a whole thinking entity. I think that it's easier to understand the apparent absurdity of this world, aka brain, if we consider Zach and Rachel as two aspects of a conscious personality, battling the interior of not just a psyche, but a particular psyche, Rachel's. That might be why Kathy chooses to judge Zach more harshly, because he represents the darkness, the bad that Rachel may have felt confronted with her parents. In this light, Zack becomes just as much the repressed side of Rachel as Rachel represents the portion of Zack that he doesn't want to address. Both of them are avoiding actually thinking about death and murder in a complete sense, which is one of the reasons they are inextricably entwined. Neither can live if the other survives, so to speak, which is why Zack breaks out of prison and smashes through Rachel's window, reuniting himself with her. On all these points, I think something needs to be said about the fact that throughout the story, Zack tries to break through various iron structures repeatedly with his scythe, and it's turned into a kind of joke between him and Rachel that he can't physically do this, but that also if he tries, the scythe will break until finally, the joke becomes significant. As Zack and Rachel are climbing the stairs that lead to the exit of this building, their way is suddenly blocked by iron bars. Miraculously, and without his scythe breaking, Zack slices through these bars like they're butter. The next thing that happens is also telling. The two come up against one last barrier as they're running up the stairs to freedom. The ceiling appears to have caved in here. Zack tells Rachel to give him the word, and he'll smash the debris to bits. And of course she does, and their way is free. When he destroys the rocks here, however, his scythe does break in half, suggesting that Zack's purpose all along was to protect Rachel against aspects of herself the whole time, and now that they've come to the end, his job is done. At this point, he can't even kill her like he promised. The fact that the scythe returns intact in that final scene where Zach breaks into Rachel's hospital window consequently appears to emphasize this idea that the entire scenario was all in her head and that she's imagining her already imaginary savior as he once was. It's a great allegory for the development of accepting oneself no matter what bad things you may have done. At the same time, we get to pretend along with Rachel that this world is true and that Zack is also a fully fleshed human being with a background that drove him to murder. Now, I would like to take a moment here and provide a short disclaimer. Although I say all this, I don't mean to suppose that Angels of Death was 100% for sure actually influenced by any of the things I've talked about. I just want to illustrate different themes and tones I see in the game and the anime. After all, I can only locate one interview with the game's creator, Makoto Sanada, which is mostly about his experience making RPG games, the tone of his work, and his background, all of which is helpful information when we want to understand why he's big into developing theatrical quote-unquote horror worlds. I've been talking mostly up to this point about the meaning behind the story, so I'll also take this moment to address the mood, tone, visuals of both the game and the anime, taking into account what we know about Sanada based off that interview, as well as to provide a slight context for everything I've said before this, and that way you can take my suppositions with a couple more grains of salt, assuming you probably already have many. So, in the interview, Sanada explains that he started studying drama and writing for the stage in high school and that he majored in drama at college. And while there are plenty of Eastern dramas to study, and this would have been the emphasis he had, I truly think it would be a mistake to assume that he didn't read anything by Shakespeare or Sophocles, Ibsen or Goethe, or, like I mentioned before, Samuel Beckett. There's just too much here that appears Western least to me. And it's clear that when Sanada started making RPG games, the influence of stage elements came definitely through in his subject matter and themes. I think it's pretty clear with Angels of Death, and even with another game he created, The Forest of Drizzling Rain, that Sanada likes creating 2D games that really set the tone of a story by keeping the elements of the stage in mind while creating the visuals. In these 2D worlds, you're able to utilize lighting and space and set the mood of a level. You're only able to add in minimal props and features. And usually when you do, you want everything you add to count towards either setting the mood, developing a theme, or for furthering the plot. And I think the adaptation of Angels of Death really took this to heart, in conveying a dark and sparse atmosphere, too. There's a definite focus on characters rather than backgrounds. But when a particular item comes into play, such as the fake moon, the first thing that Rachel notices, or the electric chair that is used as a method of punishment, it's usually a symbol that is pretty well known in art and literature. And by that measure, they end up somewhat cliché. But in Angels of Death, it's for some reason a little bit more difficult to understand their meaning because these symbols are modified in ways such as that first moon we see by not being a real moon, but rather a fake moon. These symbols are used as pivots to enhance the mystery of the plot and get us asking these questions about what these details could mean. While levels change visually from Zack's dirty slums, to Danny's hospital wing, to Eddie's graveyard, to Kathy's prison, to Gray's cathedral, there are still consistencies that remain across all floors, such as the overall grungy look, the messages Rachel comes across on the walls, or the elevators that change their dial displays but otherwise look the same. I also don't think my interpretation of this work is the only possible interpretation at all. There are a number of really cool fan theories out there, but this is just one I'd like to pose to see what people think. Because I think that if we try and see the story this way, we can start asking some more detailed questions and putting them into a framework. So... If you're wondering whether you should watch this anime, I would definitely recommend it if you don't mind that it doesn't really fall easily into any genre. The way I found it is because I'm a gross ass hopeless romantic who doesn't believe in love, so I watch and read a ton of shojo just so I can feel something. But I found it because I was watching a romance anime recommendation video and there is that clip of Ray asking Zach to kill her and then the shot of him turning around and throwing up a rainbow. The rustic background and the unique character designs in that brief moment spoke to me, and as such I felt motivated to watch the entire show regardless of whether or not it turned out shit. Of course, it didn't, and actually the fact that it's considered a partial romance only adds to the story's strengths if you take my interpretation of it seriously, in my opinion. The story doesn't have any ooey gooey moments or kissing, which makes sense in my interpretation, and yet Rachel and Zach's relationship is honestly so cute, you can just consider it on its own until you get to the deeper stuff later on. But it serves the further purpose of balancing out the sense that the entire story is allegorical and filled with symbolism regarding the psyche, and the sense that this world might just be nothing more than a pseudo-fantastical world where the existence of this scenario isn't actually that far-fetched. The balance is so good throughout that you feel you can easily shift from one perspective to the other depending on the moment in time and your personal preference. So I guess the reason I love this anime is because it's cute on the one hand, but it's got this dark world design on the other that makes you question your own existence. It immerses you in the story quickly so that you don't notice that you're asking questions until you've moved on to the next part of the story. It has you wondering whether Grey is really pulling all the strings, whether the building exists at all, and makes you wonder how Rachel's enemies all return as ghosts, since her explanation for their return isn't really sufficient at all. Everyone wants to know whether Rachel ends up dead and what happens to Zack. It gets you caring about the protagonists in just 16 episodes. It's suggestive enough to have me going back to theorists like Lacan and rereading texts by existentialists, trying to figure out what all this stuff means. I mean, seriously, like, if you've ever read Being in Nothingness or any of Lacan's writing, this mirror will stick out like a sore thumb and you'll never see mirrors the same way again. Angels of Death confuses ideologies purposefully, and because of this, I can't help but be reminded of an interview that was done with my all-time favorite creator, however the fuck you pronounce it, where he said that he didn't put apples in Death Note because of the biblical imagery, he literally did it because he thought that red apples would contrast well with Ryuk's skin color. Which, of course, pissed me off to no end because it worked so well, but he also earned my instant undying respect. But still, that kind of statement serves as a reminder that anime creators, at least in Japan it seems, in particular, take on a lot of Western themes and images, often from Christianity because they find them entertaining, which makes sense given that, like, Buddhism is the second most dominant religion in Japan, and I'm pretty sure Shinto is the first. It, it must seem kind of funny and beautiful and idealistic, this concept of God and heaven and hell. That being said, it works. They're right. It is entertaining to see all these things I know about and to unpack them, even if it was all meant for a non-Western audience. Either way, it works. So, I guess I just... There's so much to love about this anime and about the original game. I think they're awesome, and I think that if you don't at least try them out, you're missing out.